Let's get it. Wednesday, June 12, 2019. Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Eskra. Hope everyone had a great week outside of podcast land. I had an outstanding weekend out in Reading, Pennsylvania, where we went to the World War II weekend hosted by the Mid-Atlantic Air Museum. For those that followed our Instagram stories at DEPT Vet Affairs, thank you so much for your engagement, your participation, and man, we we really thank you for all the positive feedback, and we were happy to bring you all that content. Currently on our Instagram, you can find a lot of really great stories at the Golden Age Games going on now in uh, in, Ang- in Anchorage, Alaska. In a, it's going on in Alaska, uh, but a lot of really great uh, Instagram stories coming out from our team, a lot of really great content from out there, so make sure you're following that. Uh, but back to World War II. Uh, let me tell you, they had uh, 1940s, they had World War II equipment, vehicles, planes, reenactors from every theater of war during World War II. Uh, the whole vibe of the 1940s was represented. Uh, they had an FDR impersonator, Winston Churchill, Frank Sinatra. However, my favorite part about the entire weekend were the VIPs, the World War II veterans that showed up and recounted their stories. And I was either A, able to attend veterans presentations or B, interview veterans themselves. And it was a very humbling experience. Um, And we're gonna bring that to you. We're gonna split this up into multiple parts. Part one is gonna be this, uh, this episode. But before we do that, let's get to a couple reviews. This one is from A Bench. A Bench or Abe Nishi. I haven't decided yet. Love hearing veteran stories. I love to hear directly from veterans and appreciate the VA updates. Well, we appreciate you for listening, A Bench, and uh, and if and if you like to hear veteran stories, you're really gonna like this week's episode. Uh, this one is from Pen Gang. Very good content, great quality. I've enjoyed listening to this podcast for some time now. I was hesitant when the previous host transitioned out. However, Mr. Iskra is wonderful and works very well with the guests. Well, appreciate that, Pen Gang. I really hope that you see. I really hope that you hear the passion that I have um, when it comes to helping veterans. Uh, it's something that I discovered shortly after transitioning out. So, with those two reviews, this brings us to seventy-five. You know, I even said that if it was just one, I would bring this. I would bring this uh, little bonus to you. But we got two, so we are officially up to seventy-five ratings and reviews. So, without further ado, first time ever heard. Previously unreleased, this is a preview of Good Morning Vietnam's Adrian Cronauer interviewing the legendary, the one and only filmmaker, music composer, comedian, and Army veteran, Mel Brooks. You had uh, a lot of time defusing landmines. Is that right? Oh, I did. I did. You know, we were at various places... And I was, uh, they left a lot of landmines, the Germans did. There was a thing called a teller mine that could blow up a tank. So you can imagine what it would do to a little Jew from Brooklyn. So I was very careful with my bayonet. Adrian, Adrian, were you ever, when you were in uh, Korea or Vietnam, when you were there, I mean, was the enemy, did you ever get bombed? Did you ever get, you know, shelled? Did you ever get anything, you know? Yeah. Um, we had one of the best equipped 
and the most modern radio stations that I've ever worked at because every couple of years the Viet Cong would blow it up and they'd have to bring in all brand new equipment. <laughs> but, <laughs> That's funny. But we did. We did. Uh, That's scary and funny. Really hope you enjoyed that. Um, when we get to 100 ratings and reviews, I will release the entire episode as a bonus. As a bonus. And uh, you'll be able to hear the entire interview with Adrian Cronauer and the one and only Mel Brooks. No significant news releases this week, so we're going to get right in to our interviews. Uh, this episode is what I'm going to call the Pearl Harbor episode. The first one was a, a panel discussion I attended. He is a 96-year-old Army veteran. He was a plotter and a switchboard operator, and he worked with this new thing called mm, radar. He was one of the very first to ever work with radar in the Army, and he was stationed on Pearl Harbor the day of the attack. And you're going to hear right now his account of the battle. He is 96-year-old Army veteran Richard Dick Schimmel. Okay, good morning, everybody. Uh, my story isn't that great, but in 1940, I enlisted in the Army. And when I enlisted in the Army, I, they asked me where I wanted to go. And I said, I wanted to go to Hawaii. That was my dream. That's the only reason I joined the Army, to try and get to Hawaii. So the guy said, okay. He said, I'm going to put you in the aircraft warning. I said, what's the aircraft warning? The guy says, I don't know. Right? Nobody knew what radar was. England gave us radar August the 14th of 1940. And I enlisted in August the 28th of 1940. So everything was on paper. Nobody could understand what radar was. Nobody had it. We never had it. So then they said, well, I'm going to send you to Hawaii because we're going to put up the first ones over there. So I said, hey, that's great. And so I went over there. And uh, by trial and error, we finally got the radars working. I mean, when we put up the antennas, we didn't know what we were doing. But finally, it was like an erector set. The red one on the red and the blue one on the blue, you know, until we got everything working. And then we, start, we were starting operating pretty good. So in the meantime, this is like from 1940 to the middle of 41. Then when we had the radar units on the units, and then we had to build a center um, called an information center. As the radar operator would pick up the radar, would pick up the planes on the radar, they would send the coordinates into the center, the filter center, where we had a big plotting table. And there the plotting table is where we put down, we could tell you exactly where the plane was. And as the planes would keep moving, we'd just follow them along. So December 7th, well, December 6th, I was relieved by a guy, man by the name of Joe McDonald. And uh, he, our duty that night was when you went on a Saturday, you went in from 6 o'clock at night until 6 o'clock in the morning. So he relieved me. So everything was going well. But then around 6.30 or whatever it was, maybe, maybe 6.25, he got a call from one of the radar units that they had a whole bunch of planes, right? And uh, 
And the guy that was teaching this fella, I said, forget about it, nothing too much. You know, about 15 minutes later, he said to him, hey, you know what? This screen is full of airplanes. He said, they couldn't understand what it was. So then by that time, we, he took the message to Joe McDonald. Joe McDonald went and had to take it into the officer of the day who was doing his job as, as the officer of the, of the day. Now, in the Army, when you had something like that, you had, the, we were all non-coms, and if you had an officer, he was the guy that was in charge, actually. So this lieutenant said to him, we have some planes coming in from the, the west, you know, but everybody heard about the planes that were coming in from the west. But then they should have known, coming from the west, and these other planes were coming from the east, it didn't sound right. So he said, forget about it, right, the first time. The second time they called him again and said the same thing. You know, there's a bunch of planes coming. He says, no, no, forget about it. They're coming, they're coming from uh, California, right? And there was, like I said, there was a flight coming in from California. Well, by that time, next thing you know, these planes are flying and they're the Japanese. Now, a week before that, we couldn't find the Japanese Navy. So then, uh, finally we found out that they were going north, going like towards Alaska. So anyway, that, that was good and we, we didn't want that. I mean, we wanted that. So but here they are where the Japanese planes were flying over and next thing you know, they start bombing the, uh, the island. And their biggest thing was to get the Navy. Now the Japanese were smart. They knew they only had a short distance to drive, to fly, before they, if they wanted to hit their target. So they were taught how to fly, drop their bombs, and get the heck out of there. So what happened was they started that, and they hit, they hit it pretty good, and they were hitting. So when they called me, I, lived, I was at a, a tent overlooking Pearl Harbor, and I could see the planes flying but I wouldn't see anything. But then after a while, I would see big black smoke, so which meant the bombs were hitting the ships. So finally, we, we got everything set, and uh, we were working where I was working, which was called the main filter center at that time for the island. We, we had everything going, so I quick rushed down there, and that's where I was in there, helping them out and wherever I could. And, that was the whole story. I mean, it, it was over, and the next day, they did a good job. I mean, they, they really knew what they were doing. Now, the one part, they had all the airplanes, and the officer said, well, we're gonna park these planes closer together, you know? So they did, they parked the planes closer together so they could have less guards guarding them. Well, when they hit the, the plane, they hit one plane, it would explode, it would go over to the other planes. So there was quite a few planes were, were destroyed because of that. And that was the thing, now we were, December 7th was the day that we just had to do everything and we did it right, but the only trouble was we didn't get the wrong people. Okay, so uh, later on I, I had, uh, then I, one of my jobs, I had to go to different islands and help them, have them set up information centers 
and teach the people how to plot and stuff like that. So that was most of my time in there. And I went to three or four different islands, and I was sent down to uh, what it was called Canton Island. It was down in the South Pacific. It was 120 every day, never rained. I was down there for seven months, and uh, it was loaded with rats. You couldn't go to bed at nighttime without rats jumping on the bed. You know, I mean, that's a hell of a thing. I know I wouldn't let anybody sit on my bunk. And, uh, and we were living in tents then. I wouldn't let anybody sit on my bunk because if they did and they were eating something, at nighttime the rats would be calling you. Oh, yeah, I know, she's going like this. There was, one, there was one person, his parents sent him some goodies and the tent, we had them, there were wooden frames, you know, how they make it. And they would, he went and he put his food up there. And all night long, they were jumping on his footlocker trying to get at that food. So we were glad because of that, because if they were after him, they weren't after us. <laughs> but that was really a place to go. Seven, uh, and to this day, well, first of all, they used to have a, there was a ship there. Had been a, a tour ship, had gone aground. And the Japs would come over three or four times while I was there, and they would bomb, you know, and then the next day Tokyo Rose say they, they sank another ship. They must have hit that ship every time they come over to the same ship, but they were announcing it as another ship being going down. So, so that's about it, folks. If you have any questions, let me know. What island was that on? I was called Canton Island. It's on the South Pacific, yeah. It was below the equator, because we, we had to go over the equator to get there, but we were in such a hurry to get there that we never had to go through that that addition uh, or whatever they'd call it, you know. The only thing I remember about that is when we went over the side on the Jacob ladders, I got on the barge, and just when they passed my guy's barracks bag down, the ship, the barge moved and my barracks bag went in the water. <laughs> so then that, so that made a mess anyway. But that's it, and the other question. What was the biggest thing that we learned about radar from Pearl Harbor? It was effective. That's it. Yeah, I mean, it worked good. I mean, uh, like I said, England had it, you know, and they, well, they invented it, and they, they wanted to get us in the war, right? And the big thing there was Winston Churchill and our president at that time were, were good buddies. And they were together in the war, and I think that's why they gave us a radar to try and gun us into coming into the into the fight. Yeah. Before December seventh, were there any rumblings amongst the, the the guys, the troops, that there was a possibility of attack? Oh yes, there, there was a lot of talk about that. In fact, uh, maybe like a week or two weeks before that, we couldn't find the Japanese Navy, right? And here they had. They reported they were north, north of us. And, uh, but what happened was they went north, but then they snuck back. I mean, that was their, I think that was their plan. I'll tell you, they were hell of a fighters, and they knew what they were doing, because what they were bombing Pearl Harbor, they had a new, they only had a short time to get in there and get out of there, you know. That's it. Now, can I say, I'm, I'm old, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is going on from live. How many radar systems did you get to work with? 
This is from a radar tech veteran that's uh, currently watching the show. Well, I worked on the two in, in Oahu. Then I had to go over to Maui. Then I had to go over to the big island of Hawaii. Then I had to go down south to the Canton Island. And I came back. And then I wanted to go other places, but they, they wouldn't send me. You know, because I, I got to be sort of a teacher, and I didn't like that. And I wanted to get I wanted action. In fact, about six months before the war, they were asking volunteers to go to the Philippines. You know, and I wanted to travel. All I wanted to do, I didn't give a damn where I went. I said, I'm going, I'm going. They said, no, you don't go. You stay here, you know. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your, your, your center, your, your air warning center. Of what the logistics were, how you, did you vector airplanes out, or how did how did you guys disseminate information once there? Well, once once the radar picked it up, right, they would send in the information into uh, into the filter center or the center. That that was another one of my jobs. I had to teach that, right? And we had this big table with all of island, the whole, all of everything around it, and that's how we could tell where the planes were going by getting the reports. Now, after a while, they couldn't tell if it was the Japanese planes or the American planes. So then they invented what they call IFF, Identification Fender Flow. Now, as you picked, pictured the radar, the flips went up in the air, you know, and spread out like it. Now, when the, 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 the radar, and when he wanted to know if there were one of our planes, we have what they call IFF, that would go down, you know. Then it got to the point that, yeah, but they can tell. How do we know which one it is? So then we had what they call IFF, identification fender foe, right? We used to set it at times, maybe like every five seconds, right? Then the next day we'd have to change it to a different code, but we try to keep doing it, you know, uh, change, keep changing the code so we fool the Japanese. Then another thing we did, we we've had our planes go out and they drop tin foil and stuff, right? On one place, so the Japs would think they'd be going over there, and then we go the other way. You know, that was that was some of the stuff that they did over there then. Yeah. Okay, folks, that's it. Hey, thank you. grandfather served in World War II. Spending time with him were the best memories of my life. I became a physician at VA because of my grandfather, so I can help others like him. I can't imagine working with better doctors or a more dedicated staff. I'm fulfilling my life's mission with the help of my team and thanks to these veterans. I'm proud to be a doctor at VA and proud to honor my grandfather every day. Search VA Careers to find out more. Now, this next Pearl Harbor veteran is someone I actually got to sit down with. He is a 98-year-old Army Air Corpsman who was a mechanic on B-17s and B-24s at Hickam Airfield during that date of infamy. He would eventually become a pilot of the B-17. And how he became a pilot is a story you're going to want to hear. Pretty remarkable. He flew over 30 missions in Italy, 21 of which as a sortie lead. He is Army Air Corpsman William Benelli. Enjoy. 
So I have here with me Mr. William Benelli. Mr. Benelli, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Why did you decide to join the military? Oh, well, that's a big question. Uh, let's put it this way. It was time for me to leave home. Uh, there was a hell of a depression on at the time. And I left home with a dime in my pocket. Where was home, sir? And I lived in uh, Indiana, Pennsylvania. That's where I grew up in that area. And uh, being time for me to leave, I said goodbye to my mom and the tears rolled down her cheeks. And uh, I roamed the streets for a few days and then I finally went, saw the recruiting office and I walked in there and I said, uh, I'll sign up if you can get me near airplanes. Really? Really? <laughs> what was the, the fascination behind airplanes? Oh, hell, I, I didn't want to be a foot soldier. So uh, what year was this? Did you enlist, sir? 1940. 1940. I, I was 19 at the time. Mm. And uh, the sergeant spent an hour on the telephone or more and then came over to me and said there was no opening in the States. But there's an opening in uh, Hawaii. You'll have to go there. And I said, I'll take it. <laughs> Who doesn't want to go to Hawaii? Yeah. <laughs> so, Mr. Benelli, so, go ahead. Go, go ahead. ahead. So I was uh, signed up and then re-signed again at Harrisburg. And then, and then I went to Fort Dix and finally got something to eat that day. And uh, then the next day I was on board boat around the Panama Canal to Frisco. And uh, about a week later, I was on board a uh, army boat by the name of a Republic, and then Hawaii. And then Hawaii. So how long were you in Hawaii, sir? I was there, uh, this is 1940, and I arrived somewhere in July, and uh, after Pearl Harbor. So were you that you were there for Pearl Harbor? Oh, yes. Can you walk me through that day? Say again? Can you walk me through that day a little bit? What was that like, the, the day oh. of the attack? Well, uh, actually, I can start with uh, Sunday night. Sure. Downtown Honolulu was uh, loaded, unusually loaded, with white uniforms of sailors. Yeah. And uh, I never saw so many sailors uh, in as I look back, I have a feeling uh, uh, that it was deliberate to have all those to show strength because I understand uh, Marshall uh, sent a message to Kimmel and, uh, and uh, Short, the Army, uh, that uh, anticipate activity. Yeah. Uh, and. Uh, but not pass this information to the lower-ranking officers. And I just learned that six, seven years ago, just <laughs> reading in a book, and I was there. I didn't know that. Had I known that, let me tell you what, that night, late, 10, 11 o'clock on the north end of the beach where they had a little uh, recreational facility, uh, but no food. And um, uh, on the beach, there was a vehicle and uh, parked, and I thought it was a lover's rendezvous. And uh, 
I thought I'd go get on a running board and rock it and run away laughing yeah. like we kids did in, in uh, Indiana, <laughs> Pennsylvania. And uh, I got close to it, maybe 100 feet, and I could see through the windows. There were two heads up front, two heads in the back. <laughs> and, and hey, I started backing up. This is no lover's rendezvous. And uh, then... I noticed on the rear bumpers, each corner, two very large whip antennas. Yeah. What's that mean? And that I felt something sinister. I did not know what. But had I known about this communique I told you about a moment ago, I might have been put. I might have put two and two together. Gotcha. I think I would have. These could have been Japanese in the car. If you get the point. Gotcha. Uh, Yamamoto's Armada was about yeah. 200, two, yeah. 300 north of Oahu, the island. And the, ra the, the lieutenant in charge of the uh, five radars we had, new equipment yeah. that was new at the time. And uh, Mr. Schimmel, who's also here, was part of that, that radar equipment attachment. He could, could have been. Yeah. And... Um, and this lieutenant in charge, I exonerate him because he knew that 12 B-17s were coming in and he disregarded the, the radar operator's comments about what he was seeing on the scope. Yeah, yeah. And the miss, lieutenant, on account of that, misunderstood. So anyhow, where was I? Um, your, uh, your account of the morning of... Yes. All right. Uh, that morning, uh, we were on our way to get breakfast, and uh, it was now approaching oh, about 15 minutes to uh, to uh, eight o'clock to, uh, to get breakfast. There was, yeah. and uh, uh, just before I approached uh, Wheeler Field, uh, north of Wahoo, I'm uh, north of the Pearl Harbor, and Hickam Field. Um, I saw three zeros overhead, and uh, plain and as I, day. Uh, this was now morning, yeah. almost eight o'clock. Wow! And I said to my buddies in the, in the car, and I said, "You know, I said uh, I've never seen these airplanes before. You, you know, something. I was joking. I said we could be at war. <laughs> yes, I really did. Oh, wow. And then four or five minutes later." They were hitting the hell out of uh, Wheeler Field, Schofield Barracks, and the Navy was taking a hell of a punishment. And, uh, oh, they took a hell of a punch, uh, punishment. Uh, Yamamoto was 100% successful in his attack. There was no two ways about it. But I also have to say he, he screwed up. He should have, I would have, dumped off a, a bunch of kamikaze Japanese sure. to clean up and shoot all of the military. They, they, then they could have had the islands for at least 10 years before we could have taken it back, in my opinion. And they would have had all that iron to build battleships or whatever they could have built mm. with that. Uh, but, but Yamamoto pulled, he did us a favor. Ah. He pulled all of his troops out. That I, I couldn't believe it. I, what, a, what a tactical blunder. 
And did you see that as soon as it happened? You're like, wow. Well, it we came across to me as soon as it happened. Oh, yeah. Wow. I, I, I already had acquired a rifle, and I had belts of bullets over my shoulder. I looked like uh, Pancho Villa, I think. And I also had a 45. I was waiting for street to street, corner to corner activity. You were ready to go. But yeah, but they never came. And I thought myself, well, what a blunder. Holy smokes. Here he was successful. He had us by the nuts. And, and here he cancels out his victory by pulling all of his troops out. Gave us a chance to regroup. Uh, so that was 41. Gotcha. Now, 42, 41, and then 42. There was a lot of organizing, reorganizing, 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 and I found myself in a squadron now was ordered to deploy to Fiji Islands. To Fiji? Fiji Islands was uh, down under near Australia, about 175 east longitude. Okay. And uh, about 17 degrees south latitude. And uh, I lost all hope, total despair, of ever seeing the mainland again. I thought I would end up as some sort of uh, shark meat, and that would be the end of it. But, believe it or not, the coast artillery, who was already established there, yeah. was looking for potential cadets, flying cadets. They were looking for what? Po potential flying cadets. Oh, wow. What they were in need of. They were they needed pilots. So before this, you weren't a pilot? Huh? Before this, no, you were... No, I was a mechanic. In, in Fiji Island, I was a staff sergeant. Mechanic on the B-17 and the B-24. So you were a mechanic during Pearl Harbor as oh, well? Oh, yes. Oh, wow. So this yeah. is before your flying career. Yeah. So in Fiji, they asked you if you wanted to be a pilot. Fiji, they opened up the door and I submitted my application again. I have reason to believe that my immediate commander did not. Back in Honolulu, I applied and I, I have reason to believe he he uh, he negated that. He, he didn't, didn't want, want he to. Didn't turn, want to let, he didn't want to let you go. That's right. I, ah. I, I can understand. But then I think that's wrong. And I'm sure. angry about that to this day. But anyhow, I got around him yeah. in Fiji. That's another story. I don't want to take up too much of your time. No, no. You can take up as much of my time as possible, sir. Absolutely. You want me to tell you this story? Sure. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know what? Now that you put how, me How I got around my commander. Yeah, let's hear it. Okay. It's the most beautiful story of my life. All right. I was there in Fiji about four or five months roughly and uh, I learned that the coast artillery was already established and here was an African-American warrant officer who came down to the hangar, the little dinky old hangar and would look and look and look and look at the B-17. After four or five days, I decided there's something got to be done about that. So I went over to him and uh, to, to learn a few things, what was going on around in the area. Hmm. And uh, after which, a few ch exchange of words, then I 
asked him what I already knew, would you like to see the B-17? And man, he, his enthusiasm, I can say, was almost explosive. That was what he was waiting for. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> so I decided to give him the royal treatment. I took him around the airplane, inside the airplane, all stations, Bombay and the nose and Norton bombsite. I explained all of it. And then I brought him back into the flight deck and put him in the pilot's seat. Oh, man. And then I had him move the controls and look out the window, see what he was doing. Then I had him turn on the battery switch, run down the flaps and up and it's like he could, and the cowling around the engines. And then I explained all the in, engine instruments, flight instruments, navigational instruments. And finally he said, he said, you, you know so much about this airplane. Why don't you fly them? Oh. And I says, well, I have uh, I put my application in back in Honolulu, and I think my, I have reason to believe my commander uh, interfered, and uh, I have already reapplied here about, about two weeks ago, but I haven't heard anything, and that was the end of it. Mm. He thanked me and was in About a week later, we were having a meeting. He came in a hangar, and he came down to the hangar and came over to me yeah. and said, your papers are on top. They said what? Your papers are on top. Oh, wow. He reshuffled the deck a little bit. Mm. To turn them loose. Yeah. And sure enough... About four or five days later, I was on a little boat to the another island, Beatty Lavu, where a Dutch freighter was docked. And apparently, I feel, this is my opinion now, that the coast artillery the, that this Morn officer was part of, they had already been established there yeah. and probably contracted with his Dutch captain to drop about 12 of us potential cadets off at Los Angeles. I was on that. <laughs> That's boat. awesome. That's awesome. And I don't mind telling you, and I just gave him a speech over there a while ago. At night, three or four times, I couldn't. I woke up in the middle of the night. I would uh, wake up and, and I'd go up to the front of the boat and scream as loud as I could, as loud as my lungs would allow me, I have a chance. I have a chance. I have a chance. Remember, I went from total despair to here I am on a boat to Los Angeles. Oh, wow. 20 days, wow. 20, 21 days to get there. And uh, after I passed all the mental and physical exams, I'm on my way to the Thunderbird 1 to fly the Stearman. Mm -hmm. This is the cadet program. Mm -hmm. And then uh, BT-13, uh, Miranda, Arizona. And then San Marfa, Texas, due east of uh, El Paso, a couple of hundred miles. Yeah. I hit the jackpot. I went from a staff sergeant to a 
second lieutenant. The day before they discharged me as a staff, did I, let me back up. Halfway through cadets, they called me in and said, what do you want to be, a student or a cadet? And I looked at them like they're nuts. And I What's said, the difference? Yeah. <laughs> I said, what in the hell is the difference? <laughs> and they laughed. And he says, well, as a cadet, you get $75, whereas you're, you get your rank back as a staff sergeant plus flying pay. And I said, well, there's, I'm not going anywhere. I'll be able to take my rank back in case I wash out. I'll be a still, still a staff sergeant. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 So, um, uh, and I got a lot of money. And, and boy, I sent that to my mom. I was, <laughs> uh, that, uh, that, uh, anyhow. That, was, that must I have am. been a good feeling. Yes. And then uh, uh, I hit the jackpot. When, uh, I'm, a, I'm an Air Force pilot. And I'm a second lieutenant now, and I was allowed to take out an allotment for my mom, uh, $150 a month. Uh, that meant a lot wow. to me. That was good money wow. back then. I bet. Oh, yeah. I, oh, boy. I, 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 and then and then I got the bird I wanted. Oh, yeah? They said uh, they had a questionnaire and preference. What's your plane, number one, number two, number three, that you want to fly? And I put down number one, B-17. Number two, B-17. <laughs> number three, and you guessed it. B-17. Yeah, and he thought I was being a smart ass and sent me in to see the major. And I got in there and I said, Major, please let me explain. He said, well, that's what the hell you're here for. And I, and I said, well, look, I, I, uh, I've been a mechanic on the B-17. I didn't want to tell him on the B-24. I didn't want it. Yeah. And, and so uh, I've been a mechanic on the B-17. I know the aircraft uh, mechanically backwards and forwards. And why shouldn't I be allowed to play it? Oh, yeah, I get you. I get you. I'll make damn sure you're on, on, on the train to Hobbs, New Mexico. All sure right. enough. No, that's awesome. Now, so, here, uh, yeah, go ahead. so you went from being a mechanic to a pilot. Yeah. What was it like to fly your first plane? The first time you lifted off and you were able to fly. What was that feeling like? Well, it, uh, it was sort of a culmination of uh, past history. Uh, here I am now in control of the Stearman at Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, yes, it felt great. I, 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 there's no two ways about it. I, <laughs> I, uh, I like I say, I, I have a chance. I have a chance. Now the rest is up to me. That's right. That's right. That's right. And, uh, and so I qualified uh, on the Stearman. And then uh, from there, the BT-13 and then the uh, AT-17 twin engine. And like I say, that's where I got, uh, had, uh, I hit the jackpot. That's when you hit the jackpot. So how long were you a pilot, sir, in the, in the, Air, in the Army Air Corps? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, after Italy, you came back to the States. Okay. So you, you took a time in Italy, too. Uh, in, oh, yeah, the war. Well, uh, 30 sorties altogether, 21 oh, wow. of which were squadron lead. 21 were what? I came back as a captain, 21 of squadron lead. Oh, okay, Roger, yeah. Roger. Yeah, that's what gave me tracks. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, um, so you, during your service, 
Can you tell me about either a good mentor or a best friend? Best friend? Yeah. Who was the best friend that you ever had in the, in the military? Well, it was this uh, Afro-African-American, I would have to say. When I was a friend with him and treated him like a royalty, and he, he in turn was in position to make sure I could go to Flying Cadets. So you were able to live your dream. Yes. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be here talking to you today. Yes, indeed. Um, what did you do after the service, sir? Well, I stayed in. Yeah. I retired as a, right. for a lieutenant colonel from the service. Gotcha. 20 years. Wow. wow. At the age of 39. It's pretty good. And the reason I retired is I had a job waiting for me with the Civil Aeronautics Authority. Okay. Flying the flight inspection and development of instrument procedures for the entire Air Force. Oh, wow. And uh, uh, so... Um, What's one thing during your military service that you applied to the rest of your life? Do I apply to the rest of my life? Ooh, I have to think about that. Uh, can you reword your question? Sure, maybe? sure. What's one thing that you learned during your time in that you used for the rest of your life? Was it leadership? Was it discipline? Was oh, it? Oh, okay. Now I got you. Gotcha, gotcha. Yep. <laughs> Organization. Organization. Yes. To be organized. Uh, that's what helped me tremendously is to think things through. Hmm before you act. And I'm a believer and still to this day, if you talk to the right person, you will always get what you want. That's right. That's right. In the service I learned, I never waited for somebody to give me orders. I went looking for the orders I want. Initiative. You're damn right. <laughs> I don't know if I answered your question. I think you did. I think you did. William? Now, you got a movie coming out. You have a documentary coming out, right? Right. And the name of that is Burden of Memory. Can you talk to me about a little bit about what it was like to make it or well, what, it, what it's about? It's, uh, well, I can only from a personal viewpoint, I'm, I'm sure glad it's happening. I, I, I can't believe my luck. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and if it wasn't for... Uh, my son-in-law and, uh, and another fellow, I, I wouldn't have uh, understood things. Uh, now I, I, I see myself as somebody else, and I said, hold on. Well, I don't know of anybody else that can cover my tracks. Sure. Uh, 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 Nobody knows your story better than you. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And they're putting it all in print, and uh, I... It's, it's unbelievable. I, I, I just, I can't get over it. I, I mean, gotcha. I'll I was lucky in the military. I was lucky in civil service, and I'm lucky afterwards. That's good. In this documentary that uh, they're working on. William, um, is there anything else that you'd like to add that I haven't asked? That I think it's important to share to the oh, listeners. Oh, well, I could be here all day. But so, uh, I can <laughs> listen but all day. I, I, <laughs> let, let's try, do it another time. Sure. Uh, when, uh, oh, uh, if it's advice or something? Yeah, a piece of advice. Well. Everyone likes to learn from, a, from an elder statesman. Stick to it. Uh, 
don't give up. Uh, uh, always look for what you want. Uh, don't wait for somebody to to tell you what to do. That's a waste of time. Uh, if, if, if I may back up to the beginning, my brother said to me, who was a member of the National Guard, yeah. he said, my commander said, it's time for you to join up. And I told my brother, Mark, you tell your commander, I have no intentions of carrying a rifle in this coming war. My grandfather served in World War II. Spending time with him were the best memories of my life. And when he needed it, he turned to VA for treatment. I became a physician at VA because of my grandfather, so I can help others like him. Now, this is my moment to honor my country, my family, and their legacy of integrity. It means everything to me. I can't imagine working with better doctors or a more dedicated staff. Together, we're building real friendships with veterans and their families, starting with world-class care. Every day, we're helping veterans with wounds both seen and unseen. From our groundbreaking research in PTSD to our advances in physical therapy, I'm fulfilling my life's mission with the help of my team and thanks to these veterans. I'm proud to be a doctor at VA and proud to honor my grandfather every day. Search VA Careers to find out more. You know, after the last interview, I found that Lieutenant Colonel Benelli received the Distinguished Flying Cross for his bravery as a pilot in Europe. It's just incredible. That whole weekend was incredible. However, this week's Born the Battle event of the week is almost on the complete other side of the country, in Alaska. Her name is Wilma Gregory. Nearly 75 years ago, in 1945, she completed basic and medical technician training in the Army. But the war ended before she could, you know... Put it into practice. Otherwise, she would have likely been sent to overseas. Before entering the military, however, Gregory worked for an aircraft maintenance and repair company called Martin Aviation. She trained during the war to inspect warplanes that had been modified in some capacity. That led her to inspect three types of bombers at an air modification facility in Omaha, Nebraska. The B-25, the B-26, and the B-29. Officials never explained to her the reasons for the modifications because everything was so secretive. But regarding the B-29 Superfortress, which had been modified to include an enlarged bomb bay with a single set of doors, in her own words, we knew that addition was something special, but we didn't know exactly what it was for. Gregory and her colleagues inspected three B-29 bombers. Research by Gregory's family has led them to believe that these three warplanes were involved in the U.S. missions to drop the atomic bomb on Japan in August of 1945. The family says the two planes were the Enola Gay and the Boxcar, which, of course, dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, respectively. The third plane was a backup. Her son-in-law says that he can't say with 100% certainty through his research, but at the time, these B-29s were the only three to be modified like this. Last week, in her only activity at the National Veterans Golden Age Games in bowling, the 101-year-old Wilma Gregory won a gold medal in the 90 and over women's category, and this was her first ever appearance at the Games. She was also featured in 
ESPN's top 10 last week when she bowled a strike. Wilma, thank you for your service and congratulations on that gold medal. That's it for this week's episode. Next week is not going to be on World War II days. Uh, We have the 75th anniversary of the VA Home Loan Guarantee Program, and we've never had a benefits breakdown of the Home Loan Guarantee Program. So on my very first benefits breakdown, we're going to have it on that anniversary, a panel discussion with veterans that work in the Loan Guarantee Service. After that episode, we will pick up right back up with another episode or two of veterans from the World War II days in Reading, Pennsylvania. In the meantime, for more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Rally Point, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. Thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week.